Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. By 2016, the outer rims of Sydney's southwest have become an open battleground for the warring families of Middle Eastern crime. The tradecraft of drugs, drive-bys, extortion and kidnapping handed down from father to son, brother to cousin. In desperate response, the New South Wales Police established the Middle Eastern Organised Crime Squad, a new idea made from an elite team of enforcement specialists charged with getting the guns, stopping the drugs and taking down the gangs. Their story has been captured by the new book from award-winning Daily Telegraph crime reporter Yoni Bashan. His deeply researched account outlining the investigations, targets and tragedies of the fight against Middle Eastern organised crime that continues to this day. Hello, Yoni. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Now, what drove you to write about the Middle Eastern organised crime squad? I think it was a couple of things. Um, you know, it's funny, by the end of the book, I'd sort of figured out that what I really wanted to do was, first of all, tell a story that hadn't been done before. No one was really in the crime reporting space reporting on Middle Eastern organised crime. There was a lot of emphasis on outlaw motorcycle gangs, but not specifically Middle Eastern groups. And I personally found them quite fascinating. So that was probably what got me started. But by the end of the book, writing the book, I, I felt as though I wanted to tell the story of the police involved. And I, I think that's what drove me the most, because the more I researched and the more I found out how police conduct their tradecraft to, to capture these people, um, the more intrigued I was by that, their methodology, their characters, their personalities. Um, so I think that's, that's what ultimately drove me to do it. I, I wanted to tell a slice of Sydney's history, um, specifically in relation to Middle East and organised crime, but also to the, the, the very interesting police officers who'd been banded together to, to tackle that problem. How do you build that bridge, though, when you're a journalist who essentially would have been covering a lot of these guys, a lot of their investigations on a day-to-day -day level with the Sunday Telegraph, and then you start writing about them as an author for a longer-term book? Yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very tricky task, especially with MEOX, because a lot of the police officers there, um, they're, you know, they're big guys, um, they're big personalities, and for a lot of police, particularly in, a, in this stream of police officer, which is quite frontline and front-footed, they, they are indoctrinated from a very early point in their uh, policing careers not to deal with the media. So when they do encounter a reporter like me that works for a tabloid newspaper like The Telegraph, the immediate response or the, the automatic response that I, I'm used to getting is, I'm not going to talk to you. So developing that trust with these police officers was a, a massive process in itself. But I guess as with most things and in most industries, the way into it is you make friends with one person, you prove yourself with that person, um, you show a level of uh, honesty, maturity. And if you do the job right and they are prepared to invest in you, then they will introduce you to their friends or to other people. There's an interesting similarity here between the role of responsibility relying on sources and informants in the same way the journalists do as well, which is that you do have to build a rapport. You do get a lot of behind-the-scenes information by those who you build trust with. Um, I suppose the only difference is you're not holding drugs charges over individuals that you're trying to get stories from. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I'm definitely not holding <laughs> drugs charges over any of these people. But that is a common tactic, as you point out. You, you, in order to get information, you you find a piece of low-hanging fruit like a drug supplier, and you shake them down for information. Um, I would say that my relationship with these sources wasn't quite as aggressive. It was it was more collaborative, yeah. um, and my approach with a lot of them was simply, you know, it, it was an appeal for help. It was I'm trying to write your story. I want to be inside your squad room. I want I, I want readers to know what it was like to be there on that first day. I want them to know what it's like to be a cop. We get a lot of perspectives about that from um, Hollywood films and from cop shows, but they're quite exaggerated. Um, the the story I wrote is is, you know, I I went into it wanting to portray the squad room as factually as possible. What was their response when they've actually had a chance to look at the book itself? Because you do make a point at the end of the book as acknowledging that you didn't get everyone to read it, you know, because I suppose that risks people wanting to change how they are uh, presented. What was the feedback? Have you had any feedback? Yeah, I mean, there's there's been a tremendous amount of feedback. Uh, I have to say it's been overwhelmingly positive. Um, I, I haven't had anyone come up to me or, or approach me on, on any form and tell me that they, they disliked a section of the book or were um, bored by a section. So, I mean, I mean obviously I'm going to sit here and say that, you know, people loved it and people are enjoying <laughs> reading it, but, but that, that is the honest feedback I've been getting. But What, what about from the criminal set, though? The, you, you, spend a, you spend 80% of the book obviously talking about these investigations, you know, and therefore detailing the lives of some of these people who we'll get to, such as Basim Harmsey and um, uh, Eddie Darwich, etc. Have you got any feedback directly from yes, these guys? I, I did. I had a phone call about a week after the book was released from a, a, an extremely prominent person who, who I wouldn't call a criminal, sure. but who, who might have been uh, perceived as, as being one. I, I probably won't name them. Just uh, It was an off-record conversation, yep. so I just respect the, you know, the, the, the journalistic code there. But um, the feedback I got from this person was, um, you wrote a good book, and um, I'm pretty surprised by how factual it was, and there was a lot of stuff in there about me. This is the person talking about themselves. There was a lot of stuff in there that um, even I didn't know about um, the matter that you've written about in relation to me. Um, and I said, great, so no lawsuit? And they said, uh, yeah, no lawsuit for now. <laughs> so so uh, I wait with bated breath. When you go through the book, though, and, and we're going to jump around a fair bit in this discussion, there are times where you are revealing where police have put sources into an organisation. When the book is published, obviously that is revealed to that entity or to that, to that gang, that group of people. Well, it, it was How's a mix. So in some cases where it was publicly available, I, I decided to go with, um, look, I mean, if, if it's out there in the public domain, then I think it's fair game. Um, but of course, you know, steps need to be taken to ensure that no one's going to be put at risk. So mm. to, to mitigate that, I would speak to the officers in charge of that particular matter, the case officer, and I would say, look, would there be any risk in publishing the fact that um, the information you were provided in that instance was from an informant? And if the answer was there is a risk, then I would say, okay, we will remove that piece of information. Um, so there are various points in the book where it's a little vague on how an investigation might have got started. And I'm not suggesting that those are source-related Investigations. I'm just saying that steps were taken to to, to minimise any blowback on people and um, to avoid it entirely if possible. But for the same reason, um, to get back to your earlier question, that's why I sent certain sections of the book to some officers because I wanted them to be comfortable with not just how they were portrayed, though that, that wasn't a, a huge concern to me because not everyone's going to like the way they're portrayed in a book, but I, I was more concerned with issues of revealing, for example, too much methodology or putting someone at risk 
Um, those those were things that were paramount to me in releasing this book. I didn't want it to come out and put anyone at risk or, or um, yeah, endanger any lives. The book is broken up by a series of investigations. It's not just following one through line. And in one stage, you look at the shooting of one of the infamous, for lack of a better term, Ibrahim brothers. And it's an interesting investigation by the simple fact that there are two sources close to the Ibrahims during the investigation of Michael Ibrahim, and they're both working for different parts of the police, yeah. unaware to each other. And that that's where I wonder that someone like, say, for example, if Michael Ibrahim did read the book, when did when would it, this have been revealed to him? At the time he reads the book or would he know before? No, he, he, it's very unlikely that he would have known that because um, a lot of people didn't know that those two um, sources... Oh, it's a stunning revelation. It, and... and you know, it, that's what made it so much fun for me to write about. And that, it, when I was going into the writing, I thought, look, this can be done. And um, I, di I didn't have a lot of time to write this book. I had, um, you know, I, I had six months to turn in a first draft. So there was a tremendous amount of research that needed to be done from the from day zero. And I, I chose that investigations that I wanted to write about in depth in this book. Like I wanted it, I wanted every chapter to bring something new to the people who were reading about it. And that meant doing a tremendous amount of deep diving into each case and talking to as many people as possible and trying to find out as much as I could. So learning that um, those particular informants um, were working for different sections of the police force and that they didn't know that each of them were um, assisting the police was something that I found quite amusing um, and quite interesting. And I don't know, I guess it might also interest your, your listeners to know that that, that case, the, the shooting of Fadi Ibrahim, remains unsolved. And it's really because the case seems to fall apart once it actually hits court. I want to ask you personally, as well as representing those you spoke to, what it must be like to go through an investigation that may take 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, and is so detailed with so much information that you would believe would be airtight. And certainly as you're turning these pages, you are thinking this is going to get everyone where we need them to be, which is on long-term sentences. And it very rarely does. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's, again, it's one of the reasons and one of the the, the sort of overarching themes that I wanted to try and draw out for readers as they read it. I wanted them to see how hard this job can be, not just the risk involved to the officers, but in terms of prosecuting someone successfully, you can have a, a tremendous amount of information, uh, you know, uh, evidence, solid evidence, uh, fingerprints, science, ballistics, you can have rollovers, and you can still get to court, as was the case um, in that particular chapter, and things can fall apart because a witness fails to turn up or they change their story in the stand and do backflips on their, on their previous story. It seems to be backflips seems to be one of the greatest threats to every court case, um, especially within Middle Eastern organised crime. And there may be many reasons for that, which you sort of explore as we go along. Uh, and we've seen that most recently with the reveals of the exposing of the Brothers for Life court case that has recently come up, I think, in the last couple of years. Yeah, and that, that particular case is a, is a fascinating one, one that I, just due to the timing I wasn't able to explore um, in, in greater depth in this book. But it, that, that, that is a particularly unique case where you have a, a person involved in actually shooting someone, being granted an indemnity against prosecution, um, and a person who happened to be sitting next to them while that shooting occurred being charged with being a party to that shooting and um, being imprisoned for the crime. So unfortunately, it wasn't something that I could have explored in great detail in this book, but um, you know, there may be another book. Down the track. And that was only because the information hadn't been revealed. Correct. It, there were suppression orders in place, um, just timing-wise. Also, uh, in terms of publication dates, like the you know the drafts of this book had to be into the publisher at a certain time. And you only everyone needs a sequel. 
Everyone needs a sequel. Everyone absolutely. needs a sequel. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, that, that was a, you know, I think, I think the Brothers for Life as a, as a group or an entity or something that probably warrant their own um, book or TV show or opera or something. <laughs> it certainly seems very operatic given the nature of its leader. And, and that brings us to the point of there is a chapter dedicated to uh, Bassam Hamzi who created Brothers for Life. And the most intriguing thing about him perhaps is that he was in Supermax, so behind bars, within isolation. Yes. And yet he was able to make over 460 calls a day for six weeks. How does this happen? And it's probably one of the cases that most fascinated me and probably I was particularly motivated to tell this story because so much of it hadn't been um, written previously. Journalists had written about the fact that he'd been charged with these offences, but no one had gotten into the nitty-gritty of the actual operation to catch him and the logistics involved in doing so. So just give us an explanation as to who he is and, and how he ended up there and then and then continue on from there. Sure. So Bassam Hamzi is, is a guy who basically started out as, um, you know, he, he, he was born in this country. His um, father uh, immigrated here with his, with his mother uh, in the 80s or in the 70s, I believe. They brought up a family here. They based themselves in Auburn. And um, Hamsey was kind of a small-time crook until the age of 18 or 19 when he committed his first murder. But it was only once he got into the prison system did he actually start to um, cultivate this persona for himself as this kind of spiritual overlord of, of the of the criminal world he's he's this guy who's not particularly powerful or powerfully built but he's able to tame and bend people he's able to um and this is what the psychologist said as well which is the the prison psychologist or a prison psychologist said that he has a unique ability to influence others yes that, that this is something that they picked up and and this is long before he was actually exhibiting um that overt behavior of um you know uh, rallying people to join prison gangs that that he would lead, and that that is part of the reason why he was placed into isolation because he exhibited a, an influence and an ability to tame people in a way that most other prisoners can't do. But um, to answer your earlier question, how did this actually happen? How was he able to get a hold of the phone? It was while he was um, he was in Supermax, which is the most secure jail facility in the Southern Hemisphere, in Goulburn. And he was moved out of Supermax for reasons. He's always denied this. He's always denied the fact that he was trying to uh, convert other prisoners in Supermax to Islam and to assist him in breaking free from Supermax. That was the charge levelled against him by the commissioner. He's denied it. And as a result of that charge, he gets moved to Super to um, Lithgow Correctional Centre and to a specific unit at Lithgow called the Security Threat Group, which is a group that's set up to isolate um, gang kingpins and... Um, people involved in all kinds of other enterprises in prison. The idea is you isolate them, remove them from their base, and, and therefore their power um, decreases. So it's while he's in there that investigators believe he's able to get hold of a smuggled phone because it's infinitely more difficult to get a smuggled phone into Supermax than it is to Lithgow. And from there, he begins making his phone calls using this smuggled mobile phone, approximately 460 a day, running a drug empire over a period of six weeks and running investigators off their feet, trying to keep up with every single call and every act of criminality that's unfolding while he's on the line to various underworld characters in the community. And this becomes the issue, doesn't it, which is that they actually don't have the time to keep up with having to translate both the Arabic but also 
the actual codes that he's using for these apparent deals and, and, and orchestrations of, of hits. Exactly. And the, the examples that were given to me countless times by the investigators on this case were they'd be listening live to a phone call that suggested a drive-by shooting was going to happen or that someone was going to be kidnapped. But all they would have is like a nickname or um, a street or they would have Melbourne or Adelaide, but they wouldn't have a specific street at a specific time. And the phone call that they were listening to while it was happening live, he'd hang up the phone and make five other calls that were unrelated to it. Those would have to be translated. A, a log jam would happen. Things would pile up. And, and these guys would be scrambling, trying to crack down. Okay, is there a drive-by shooting happening? Do we need to mobilize surveillance to follow some people? Um, what city are we, are we talking about? Do we need to contact law enforcement in that city? Um, and so there was this constant process of trying to catch up with his criminality because he worked very quickly and everything was being done in his own head. He never wrote anything down and he never needed to stop and take a break. He, he operated at a pace that was much faster than an entire team of detectives. And, and that's their words, not mine. And this is one of these things where you suddenly wonder what else he could have done if he hadn't chosen that life of crime as well, because all, all, everything's there. He's actually managing a business. He's treating it like a genuine business. Mm. And his intention was, was it not to sort of build a crime family like the, the Gambinos and the Bananos of, um, of the US, those, mm. those big mafia families? The, the idea of it was actually to build what we now know today is the Brothers for Life street gang. So as far as the investigators could tell, and remember, this, this, it's very difficult to get inside of Bassam Hamzi's head, but from listening to the phone calls, it would have appeared, and what they were certainly alleging was that he was using the phone to coordinate a drug syndicate outside of prison, which involved his father and cousins and family members who would deliver drugs from Sydney to Melbourne, cannabis, uh, cocaine, ice, things of that nature. But the, the, the point of all this was to raise money so that a warehouse could be funded, a lease on a warehouse. And using that warehouse, they would base the operations for what would be a, a powerful street gang called the Brothers for Life. And Hamsey's vision for this was that they would cruise around the streets in black Chryslers, which would differentiate themselves from, say, the outlaw motorcycle gangs, which use motorbikes. Um, you know, so you'd have these heavy black Chryslers rolling up into a neighbourhood and standing over businesses, and everyone would know who these guys are. It was very important to him that he wanted them to be seen and to be recognised, to be known as such, that ego played, seemed to play a huge role in the criminal enterprise that he was after. Absolutely. And he, and he was, you know, getting back to the analogy uh, earlier about the, the business model or the business structure that he was running. I mean, he, he was this classic micromanager where he would just rage and scream at the people beneath him if they didn't do what he'd asked them to do or if they'd do it and they didn't do it properly. I mean, the, the phone calls that were recounted to me by these investigators were ones where he, he would just shout into the phone at these people. But I asked them the same question. Like, it seemed like had this fella not gone into prison, um, who knows what he would have, um, you know, developed into, into society if he had entered into a, a legitimate form of living. It was a family business and yet... Like all families, it had its issues, perhaps in this case far more dangerous issues, which is that he ultimately put out a hit on his own brother. Oh, that, that was just one of the things. I mean, he, he suspected um, one of his brothers, his younger brother, of uh, cutting him out of drug deals or, or skimming off the top. So, you know, there were many of the phone calls, and this was actually some of the first phone calls that the investigators happened upon when they started listening to this mobile phone. Um, they overheard him trying to find a hitman and a motorbike and uh, disguise for a hitman to go and um, shoot his younger brother in the leg. And it wasn't just that he would be shot. His younger brother had to present himself to be shot, so it would have to be prearranged and meet in the park. But um, 
you know, there were other phone calls where he'd rage at another brother and say, like, you have to go down to Melbourne right now. Like, you need to be in Melbourne by tomorrow morning to collect the money for this drug deal that I've just done. And playback of these phone calls would reveal this brother really didn't want to go and really wasn't into it and um, had other priorities. But, you know, you had to listen to Bassam because Bassam could send people to shoot you. And that was always the underlying threat. So even though someone is locked up, they're in isolation, they're in Supermax, which is meant to be the place you cannot have any sort of criminal enterprise from, he's influencing several activities in New South Wales and Victoria to the point where he's sending people down and then getting them to put him on speakerphone as he intimidates others. Yes, exactly. And that, and that happened in, uh, in, in two separate cases, one of which uh, no charges uh, were preferred against the actual uh, assailants involved, but certainly Bassam was charged over a, a kidnapping in Melbourne uh, and a separate one in South Australia where, again, he was live on speakerphone and, and giving orders from the prison cell, telling the, the assailant in the room, slap him across the face for me and cut him up for me and cut it. You know, I'm going to cut your finger off right now. And, um, you know, none of those things ended up eventuating because police were able to intervene. In that particular instance in Adelaide, the officers in New South Wales who were listening to the calls live were able somehow to put together who the victim was, where they lived, and were able to dispatch a patrol car in Adelaide to actually visit the address and interrupt this kidnapping or this detaining situation, effectively saving this man who was um, being stood over. Um, and they, they remarked that, the investigators remarked that, you know, as he was being taken away, you'd never seen someone so happy to be arrested before. So. <laughs> These are moments, though, that you almost wouldn't believe could occur, you know, holding out the phone with a guy from Supermax being on a demanding retribution. They feel like Hollywood moments as such. And there's a series of them because it's also, as much as we see acts of villainy, um, which surprise us, we also see great moments of detective work which come purely out of luck and happenstance um, to, to the point that they found that he had a phone by pure accident. But also, uh, and I can't remember which incident it was, but there was a team from, I think, the, um, the Crime Commission who were in a car on watch. And I'll let you tell the story from there. It, it, it's sort of, again, one of those ones where when, when I heard about it and in the process of researching this particular chapter, um, Officers were very uh, excited about telling me about that in that incident because it was just it was just an example of actually what what can go on in southwestern Sydney and just I guess the the volatile areas that police can work in sometimes. But to to get to the story, um, the New South Wales Police, while investigating Hamsey, were working in concert with the Australian Crime Commission, which is a, a federal law enforcement body. Which their officers don't go out and actually arrest people, but um, they they do a lot of intelligence work. So they listen to phone calls and um, uh, disseminate intelligence to various jurisdictions and around the country. large teams of surveillance yes. as well. Yes, they're, they're one of their specialties is surveillance. Right. So in this particular situation, the, the team in New South Wales were monitoring Hamsey. They were aware that Hamsey was going to be sending um, a truck laden with, uh, I, I believe in that case it was cannabis. The cannabis was going to be going down to Melbourne to a buyer and they wanted to get in front of the movement of these drugs and, and just collect some evidence. So they were going to attach a GPS tracker to the truck and they were going to follow it. So that involved sending Australian Crime Commission surveillance operatives to this street in Auburn, I think it was Mary Street, where a truck was waiting. And uh, the, the plan was to attach a GPS tracker. And, and, and while they were waiting for the right opportunity to, to follow this van or this truck, um, two groups of men just suddenly manifested on the street in front of one of the surveillance operatives and began fighting. This was a prearranged fight. Um, 
both sides had, had called themselves down to this particular spot on Mary Street and began to punch on in front of this surveillance operative. Now, what do you, what do, you do? You're sitting in the car, you're watching this fight unfold. You're an officer of, of the law, so uh, you know one would imagine that you'd step out of the car and intervene and stop the fight. However, you can't give away your position while you're conducting this surveillance. So what does he do? He remains in the car and he tries to stay invisible, which is, is all perfectly reasonable. Um, and he continues to do this even while um, one of the men actually rolls across the front of his bonnet, leaving fingerprints all over it. <laughs> and, um, you know, e- even even more spectacularly, when guns end up being pulled and fired in the air, which is, uh, of course, of huge concern and massive risk uh, occupationally, um, the fight ends up ending with no serious casualties because um, a-, a car pulls up and one side of the argument piles into this car and they drive off. But, um, you know, we later learned that a number of those people were arrested by virtue of the fact that fingerprints were left on the bonnet of this surveillance car, which had been polished and cleaned that morning because the, the guy using it is, is um, quite fastidious about keeping it clean, I guess. <laughs> so for, he's rolled over the front of the car and they've taken his fingerprints to then go off and get the rest of the people involved in the, in the fight. That's as I understood it, yeah. That, that's the way it was explained to me. It was kind of just a, a – it had nothing to do with Hamsey. It had nothing to do with the investigation, but – I guess it was told to me as, first of all, kind of an, an interesting and unusual scenario that it's kind of a funny war story, but it was also told to me as an example of this was the environment that we were working in in southwestern Sydney. Like you can just be hanging out on a street and a gunfight will erupt. And the area was known, Auburn, Bankstown, Punchbowl, Greenacre, Campsie, these areas of southwest Sydney were really undergoing um, terrible times where parts of like Punchbowl, uh, Tilopia Street was a no-go zone for police. What changed? How did they clean that area, those regions up? And have they? Uh, to, to some extent, yeah. I mean, parts of Auburn were no-go zones back in, say, 2004, but um, they're much better today. Um, Tilopia Street, as you correctly identify, was very much a no-go zone in the late 90s, but today it's um, fine. I mean, I, I don't think there's any issue for police to drive down the street. And when I say no-go zone, I, specifically, I don't mean for the community. I mean, community members could, could walk down there. It was, it was more, you couldn't drive a patrol car down Tilopia Street in the late 90s because uh, it would be attacked. Um, I mean, there were instances where uh, bricks were thrown, when officers were threatened. And, and there was one famous case where uh, a particular drug dealer living on the street used a loud hailer to order a cop car that was driving down the street to leave. He, he got on the loud hailer and, and said, leave now, and the car backed up and, and, and sort of drove away, which is a terrible thing to happen because it, it sort of, for law-abiding members of the community to actually see that, um, it's, that, that that's kind of one of the worst things that can happen for a police force where your community loses confidence in your ability to solve crime. Because the flow-on effect from that is people won't actually come to you with information because they won't see you as competent enough to act on that information. So it, it, it's just bad all round when police appear to be on the back foot against the criminals they're trying to attack or trying to lock up. So what did it take to build MEOC itself? What sort of people were they looking for? Because you know, to enter an environment where police are being driven out of streets by drug lords, um, there's an enormous amount of fear. There's an enormous amount of threat involved as well. So to say to people, we want an elite team to do what cannot be done, that must take an enormous immense uh, of skill, self-sense, support, etc., to actually institute a team that can make a difference. True. And, uh, you know, when you're talking about a team like Meox, I think it was the largest police squad that was in its existence at the time. Uh, today it's rivaled by the gang squad, which is 
it's got similarly bulky numbers. But at the time, MEOX, when it was formed in 2006, it, um, it had about 108 officers in total, which included administrative staff and all that. What happens traditionally when you form a new squad, whether it's a big one or a small one, is that you, you obviously want the big, the smartest, the, the, the guys who look the most intimidating, um, the hardest working and the people most motivated to be there. But inevitably that's not going to happen because when you start a police squad, not all those people are going to be available or um, necessarily want to join or they might not be in the stage of their career where they're looking for that kind of work. So you will get a pool of those people, but then you will have a lot of secondees who will come from suburban detectives' offices and um, you know regional centres and city local area commands, but they don't necessarily want to be there. And certainly when Meox first started, there were people... There was a famous case where um, you know they were doing an introduction around the office and a, and a guy stood up and he said, um, I don't want to be here. I'm doing my three months secondment and I'm going to be about as productive as a piece of dog shit drying in the sun. <laughs> and um, he ended up leaving and that was good. No one wanted him there. He's still in the police force, you know, doing work out there somewhere. But um, that that is sort of a normal process that occurs when a new police squad is is getting up and running. You get a lot of people at the start um, and over time, you you will get the ones who who want to stay. They they will they will prove themselves. They will stay. But then you'll get a lot of others who will naturally just go on to to other things. And what happened at Mayox after a couple of years was that they were able to get a stage where they had a waiting list of people wanting to join because they saw the work that they were doing and police wanted to be part of that. Reading the book, it sort of took me to the place of it reminded me in many ways of David Simon, the American writer who put to, who's responsible for the Wire TV show, which is you know, recognised as one of the greatest pieces of TV, and certainly is long form storytelling about a surveillance operation, um, but based on homicide, his year embedded with the um, Baltimore police. Would you ever want to do something like that yourself? Oh, would I? <laughs> um, yes, I would. And um, uh, you know, that, that's something that I'm still experimenting with and something that I'd, I, I query whether we could do something like that in the Homicide Squad in New South Wales. Um, you know, I, I'm always a believer that we could, we could, but I have sounded out people there previously who have said uh, it, it would be difficult. But absolutely, yeah. And uh, David Simon is just the master storyteller when it comes to matters of law enforcement. And um, he's got another fantastic book called The Corner where he just yes. details life on, on Baltimore drug corners. And um, it's similarly fascinating in the way that Homicide was. But um, th those two books are just um, groundbreaking in terms of police reporting and um, storytelling and, and just police procedurals and, and how it needs to be done. Um, to be compared in the same categories, just uh, sensational. Thank you. So, what drove you towards crime reporting? So, my my career was kind of a bit unusual in that I um I was actually a radio reporter before I was a newspaper reporter, and I, I had a few frustrations with working in radio because you always got a surface level understanding of the story you were telling, but because you're talking in bits. Yes, you, and you get a very limited amount of time on air where you can actually uh, discuss a, a particular. I don't just mean police reporting, but even reporting on a federal budget or, or just matters of general interest. So I, I crossed over into newspaper reporting around um, 2008 and a, a vacancy had emerged in the police reporting round. Someone had um, just decided to, to move on and, and do some other things and I got called into my editor's office and I'd, I'd never done police reporting as a round or as a beat before. So I had really no experience and... To be, to be absolutely frank, not, not a great deal of interest either. I, did, I, I was more of a political sort of head. 
I was more interested in the politics and property and economics and social issues. Um, but the boss said, you're the police reporter. And I said, great, do I get a police radio? And they said, no, and, and it wouldn't matter anyway because they're all encrypted now, so um, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it, it was uh, a trial by fire and, um, you know, I, I made a couple of enemies in that, those first 12 months because there was no real um, mentoring for, <laughs> for kind of, you know, cadets like me. But um, So when mistakes are made as a journalist uh, in those early days because you are, you, you're after the story and sometimes the story gets in the way of a relationship. And is that what burns that bridge? Yeah, I mean, it can. It's just, it's one of those things that, I mean, I've, I've still got people who, who probably, I mean, I haven't tested it recently, but there were people who for a long time just wouldn't talk to me. Um, one of them was Ken Mackay, who's one of the most prominent characters in the, in the book I wrote. Um, but, you know, we managed to repair that. And um, well, you, the, you wouldn't the, have had much of a book if you hadn't. Well, exactly. And that's why it was so important um, to sort of, uh, you know, make an approach to him and, and see if we can let bygones be bygones. And, and thankfully, he, he, he was up for it. But you've, you've covered crime in Australia and you've also covered crime in New York when we're working for the Wall Street Journal. What was that like? It was fascinating. It was great. Um, where to begin? Uh, very different uh, system of um, relations with the police over there. Um, the, it takes a while to sort of – a lot of information – that is very difficult to glean when you're reporting in Australia is very accessible in New York. So take a stock standard murder that occurs in a part of the city. So the police over there will release information to you that would take many, many hours and sometimes days to get in Sydney. So if a murder happens here, a, a large part of the day is actually spent trying to just find out the name of the victim and his or her address. But over in New York, I was really surprised to learn that if... Um, once formal identification is completed, they will just release the name and their address and uh, date of birth and, and all these particulars that are just really helpful to go and actually get to the heart of the story. So you spend a lot less time um, trying to figure out what you're doing um, in terms of identifying the person and a lot more time figuring out what the actual story is. So, that I mean, that was one sort of small difference that I, I identified. But I also noticed that, um, you know, they, they, they still have in New York uh, a an area like within the police plaza where reporters just sit and liaise frequently with um, police officers. So it really is a working relationship between the two. They're very much in tune with how the media needs to work as well as bring them on as part of the investigation in many ways? I, I guess so, yeah, in the same way that they do over here. I mean, media is instrumental in how the police solve their cases using us to disseminate information or rattle cages, which is a popular expression, to release information so someone will use a telephone or whatever. Is the nature of crime different? I mean, what I found was that um, in Sydney, if a murder takes place, it's a big deal. Really, really big deal. And it's, and it's a big deal in New York as well, but I, I found there was probably a bit less uh, newsroom hysteria over a murder, particularly if it was in um, you know, parts of New York where crime is uh, routine. Um, in Sydney, southwestern Sydney, uh, murders uh, happen not with great frequency, but with some frequency. It's not uncommon to hear of a murder happening in southwestern Sydney, but that, that is still a big deal in, in the Telegraph newsroom. Like We want to know who that person is and the motives behind why they were killed, and all the normal stuff that the public expects, expects that we do as journalists. But in New York, I found that if a crime such as a murder was to happen in an area where murders are not uncommon, um, then that was not treated as front-page news at the Wall Street Journal. What I remember being considered um, 
bigger news over there were, were things like um, racially motivated crimes, hate crimes, um, and the, the biggest stories and, and the biggest social issues that, that sort of um, were kind of able to be dissected out of uh, the general volume crime that occurs in, in various neighbourhoods. But, um, of course, like if, if someone were to, say, get killed in a, in a, in a swanky part of you know, Manhattan, that's, that's obviously a massive story. Um, Everyone cares when you kill the rich. Uh, absolutely. Um, but I, I would argue that in Sydney, uh, people care a lot when you kill the poor as well. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's what I'm looking for, which is that, that real social difference between the US's views on, on murder, um, but, but crime in general compared to what occurs out here. Um, and I wonder if that, when we look at MEOC's work in regards to trying to remove guns from the street, you know, back in the 80s, if, any, if there was a gun used in anything, it was, ext- you know, it was everywhere you know, on the news, the 90s as well. But by, by now, we've sort of started to become accustomed to the nature of drive-by shootings, which is a terrifying reflection upon our society. Um, how is that related to specifically Middle Eastern organised crime? It does seem to be something they choose to do more so than other crime cultures. Yeah, look, it's an uncomfortable fact, but um, one of the things that differentiates Middle Eastern organised crime from, say, Italian organised crime or Asian crime, which are both, you know, very significant. They, they chew up significant police resources. They, they happen just as frequently as Middle Eastern organised crime. But the big difference with MEOC-related crime is that it's more public, it's deliberately more public, um, and the people involved tend to be related to each other in, in vast family structures. But it's the public nature of the violence that makes it so prominent and therefore so important because, again, it comes down to this issue of perception of crime in the community. If the community believes that police aren't able to get on top of a, of a criminal issue, um, they lose confidence in that police force and that has the flow-on effects that I was outlining earlier. And, and so much of their behaviour seems to be trying to instil that lack of confidence as well. It's almost this level of bravado in some of these individuals who you've profiled within the book who have MEOC tattooed around their neck or MEOC license plates on their vehicles that they would park at the scene of a crime mm. as well. It's, it's a brazen um, abuse towards the police to sort of say, what are you going to do? Yeah, and, and it's the same when a prosecution fails. It's, it's a very empowering thing for a criminal to face court on a charge. The more significant, um, the more empowering when that charge is, is withdrawn. And there are many characters who have, have walked free on murder charges, and it's because of that that they walk down the street with a gold medallion or a Maserati, um, you know, behind the wheel of a Maserati, and people see that person and they see how they were able to outsmart the system, and all of this lends to an empowering factor for these people, um, which is then picked up by others living on that street or in that community, and I'm talking specifically about young people and eight-year-olds, um, sons and brothers and cousins who see that and think, wow, that's, that's a shortcut to life. That's, that's how you make money. That's how you do things the smart way. Um, you know, screw going to work and actually um, earning money and paying taxes. I can do what that guy over there does and he drives a fast car and he doesn't have to work very hard. And, um, you know, that that's one of the things that I, I by the end of writing the book, I, I, you know, and it's something that people in Meox were saying to me the whole time, that that, that is a, a very influential factor into how you draw, you know, the new generation into this um, criminal circuit. Because you have to stop the crime to change the culture. I, th- I think it goes further. I think it goes in, in terms of changing attitudes. And that's another thing about Middle Eastern organised crime in particular um, compared to, say, the Asian communities. Um, Deb Wallace, who was the um, squad leader at, at Middle Eastern organised crime, she told me 
that when she was the head of the Asian crime squad a, a decade earlier, she noticed that it was a one-generation problem. So the people involved in Asian organised crime and the distribution of heroin in Cabramatta during the late 80s and early 90s, um, they didn't do so because they were necessarily interested in being bad. They were, it was a means to an end. The, the point of it was make money so my children can go to school so they can grow up and live a normal life. They weren't in it for the sake of being notorious. The big difference between Asian crime and Middle Eastern organised crime is that notoriety is what's being sought. They love being in the in the newspaper. They love they love having their crimes um, highlighted and the the idea that they are the, the baddest or the worst in their neighbourhood. Bassam Hamzi likes being written about, and when Angelo Mamolo and other members of his team showed up to Supermax to charge him over that mobile phone he smuggled into Lithgow. He was standing there with a front page of the Daily Telegraph ready with a huge grin across his face. I guess the point I'm making is that Meox is is a a crime trend that goes further than just the first generation criminal like with the Asian organised crime syndicates. Meox is very much second and third generation and that's why Meox as a squad still exists. There is no more Asian crime squad. Um, Asian crime's evolved. There's no longer just Asians working with Asian... um, organized crime members. It's, it's Asians working with Balkans, working with Vikings, working with Middle Eastern people. But Meox as a squad continues to exist because the lessons from the 90s, the drive-by shootings and the kneecappings, nothing's changed. They're still doing it. So um, that was a question that I was very interested in, in getting to the bottom of in writing the book. Why do we still need this squad? Why, why has nothing changed here? And the answer I got invariably was because they haven't changed. Because it's tradecraft now. It really is a career that you pass down or you raise raise children up into and raise a family into as well. Yes, and, and again, that, that, that was something that was illuminated by conversations with Deb Wallace who said that it, the tradecraft is something that's kept within a family. A family might be uh, have an expertise at rebirthing cars or an expertise at running drugs or, um, I mean, in the case of the family, the Hamsey family, they were particularly adept at, um, you know, uh, dealing drugs and moving drugs. Um, but there are other families who, who are just as adept at, at running uh, firearms and, and other things. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a family business and it's, it's intergenerational. And that's why it doesn't look like it's going to dissipate anytime soon. I mean, the work at Mayox hasn't decreased. It's increased, in fact, um, which raises different kinds of questions like, what aren't you doing then? Um, what needs to be done? What else? Um, and these are things that are, that are just going to be continually debated. I'd be very interested to see whether this crime type still exists in another decade's time, and I would suggest that it probably will. Well, Yoni, obviously, as I said at the very beginning, you know, there needs to be a sequel, so you'll obviously return to this at some stage and very much look forward to it. So congratulations on the book. It's a great read. So thank you so much for taking the time today. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. And Yoni's book, The Squad, Drugs, Guns and Rocket Launches, The Inside Story of Australia's Middle Eastern Organised Crime Squad, is now available in stores and online. This has been Conversations with Writers. I'm James Rickards, and please connect with us via Twitter at ConversationsWW or find us on Facebook. Thanks for listening.